Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. Interviews with writers with me, Liam Bishop, a writer and critic from Leeds. Today I'm delighted to welcome Mara Faye Leatham and Tiago Miller. Mara has translated the likes of Jaume Cabré and Alicia Kopf, both of which have gone on to be award winners and Books of the Year selections. A translation of The Whispering City by Sarah Molinet won an English pen award. Tiago's translations include those of Raul Garigasai and Montserrat Roche. But today we're here to discuss When I Sing Mountains Dance by Irina Sola, translated by Mara and due to be re-released in paperback this month, and Tiago's translation of The Angel of Santa Sofia by Giuseppe Amarjami, newly released by Fum de Stampa. One is a polyphonic trans-historical novel set in the Pyrenees Mountains where family tragedy echoes down the ages, where even the bears and the mushrooms have their say in the narrative. The other is a brooding story within a story about the mysterious disappearance of a bishop at a conference on the devil. Mara joined me from Barcelona, while Tiago joined me from Lleida. And what we particularly enjoy on the Rippling Pages, what we enjoy hearing, as we've heard with other translators, is, is the translators speaking about the books that they've translated uh, in their own words and hearing about the experience of translating that book. I don't know who'd like to go first. Tiago, you want to go? Yeah, I don't mind. Absolutely. Um, so the Angel of Santa Sofia, it starts with the narrator arriving in, in Turin for a demonology conference at the University of Turin. Uh, he goes on a long journey and it ends with him leaving a mansion at dawn, having learned that hell doesn't exist. We meet uh, angel-obsessed car- cardinals, a duchess who's convinced that her daughter needs an exorcism, a Swedish physicist who's created a strange machine that is able to show the dark matter of a parallel universe. And there's a man who claims to have met the devil in person in a bar. And then we hear the tale of a Renaissance man who's returned from hell. And then he journeys to the Vatican, to Vatican City to explain it all to the Pope. You know, I'm liable, if I t- speak any more about what happens in the book, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm liable to lead listeners into a labyrinth. But I think this word labyrinth is important because this is the sort of effect that it has on the reader. It has a very labyrinthine uh, structure. And this is important because this, this, this shows the influence of Borges, I think, on, on, certainly on this book. I think generally on Arjami, but certainly in this book. When the boat, when he was interviewed when the, when the book was published, and he said how interested he is in, in the way that Borges perceives theology as a branch of fantastic, fantastic literature and how he's fascinated with, with the imagery uh, and, and dark, the darkness and the mysticism that, that theology is able to, to give us. I think in the book, there's two main lines of investigation. I think the first half is more concerned with the legend of Faust. So it's this idea of the devil as an intellectual man of letters, highly knowledgeable. And and, and this is all very alluring. The devil is a very attractive character. I think if an angel were to come down to earth, I think they would just preach about the fucking glory of God, you know, but... The devil comes and speaks to us about art, history, philosophy, literature, alchemy, physics, fine wine. Arjami's devil is is more of the intellect. The devil is yeah. an intellect. I like that. I like. I really like that idea actually, and uh, how what kind of knowledge the and devil it, brings. And it's a very earthy knowledge, isn't it? It's what mm. we are concerned with in our daily lives. Yeah, yeah. Not talk, he's not talking about the glory of heaven and the afterlife. He's talking about all of the very earthy things that we or earthly things that we're interested in 
in our day-to-day lives. It is a very short novel. There, you, there is, you've, you've highlighted how much is going on shortly, but I'm going to bring Mara in now to talk about when I sing Mountains Dance. Hi, Liam. Hi, Tiago. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between reading and translating, which might sound facile, but um, I find so often that when I read something, you know, I feel I understand it. And then when I start translating it, I think, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Um, And this, with this book, I, I brought it to the editor and I said, um, I found a, a book for us to do together. This was actually a, a few years ago now. And um, and since then, it's kind of gone on to have this life. It's won a European Union Literature Prize and, and the English version has done very well. Um, and what was it that drew me to this book it's it's something that i that i i wonder about why do i have certain authors or books that i'm curious about translating for many years i didn't have um that luxury to choose what i translated which um was a a, a very good learning experience but now that i do have a chance to be more of a prescriptor and i think what draws me to Irena's work, which this is her second novel, her first novel, um, I also loved and have also translated, but hasn't come out yet. It's called Azdiks, is her storytelling. It is, she has kind of a very joyous way of narrating. She she's very kind of naturally emits this this light. There's something illuminating about her work. Um, and a lot of her subject matter is about storytelling, the stories that that we tell and that, that make up our culture. So this novel is told in, I think it's 14, 15 different voices, um, which include storm clouds, mushrooms, um, animals, as well as humans. And it tells the story in these layers of this kind of patch of land uh, with a few houses in in the high Pyrenees. I mean, both the novels are quite, I wouldn't say polyphonic, but yours is polyphonic so much, Tiago, but it, there's lot, there's different stories in the stories, and then we have the polyphony of all the different voices that Irena tries to write about uh, in, in the matters. I, I probably should explain the distinction between that. How did you come about, um, how did you come about this novel first? Was it brought to you or did you bring it to, to FDE? Boom de Stamper, sorry. Yeah, it was bought to me, and then I and then I pitched it to from the stamp. I'm sort of in contact with a, a critic and a, 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 an awesome writer and poet and translator as well, uh, Jaume Seponzalorda, and he he sent me the book because he is um, editing a series for a, a publishers based in Palma in Mallorca. He sent me the book and said, "Look, I think you'll like it. Have a look at it," and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I read it twice straight through, and and then I happened to be speaking with the editor from from the Stamper about a few things because it was at the point where I was finishing up Wild Horses, and I mentioned this book. He was very interested in it, and and then it just went from there, and it all happened quite quickly. You know, being quite a short book, and being I mean, it's interesting what Manos just said about Irene Solar's work being joyful. This is exactly how I feel about Arjami's book. And he says it himself that literature has to be an act of joy, whether it's reading, writing, or translating in our case. But literature is 
has to be joyful. I, I don't, I fail to achieve that every day. <laughs> well, this is actually, this is the most joyful translation experience I've had. It was so much fun translating this book. Uh, it was so pleasurable. And that doesn't happen often. It normally happens in very, for very short moments when you're translating. It's a slog, but you have those moments of joy because this is all about the pleasure of reading, the pleasure of stories and of storytelling. There's some dark, there's some dark subject matter. There's some dark subject matter in both novels. Where does that joy come from for you both? And what is it the joy in the story that you're translating? Is it the joy of the language? Well, if I can go back to what Mara said about um, the difference between reading and translating, that yeah, it happens quite often. You read a book, but it's only until you translate it when you realise, first of all, how good it is, and second of all, how difficult it is to reproduce, uh, to create your own version. But this is where the joy is for me. It's this active um, engagement with literature. It's the act of writing. And I think this is something we have to constantly say as literary translators, that we are writers. Yeah, that for me, the language is the easiest part. Reading one thing in Catalan and putting it and understanding it and putting it in English, that's the basic. Where it gets difficult and where it gets very enjoyable is when you have to start writing yourself. And that's an active engagement. For me, there's two very different um, modes of interacting with a text that I'm translating. Um, could sort of be summed up as like the forest and the trees. And there's definitely a moment where I'm kind of deconstructing each word or how it functions in a sentence. And I can get lost in that moment of what what each word is doing. And then I need to find a way out to see it more as a whole. Um, so those are two two different moments in in the process for me, both of which I, have some joy and some pain. <laughs> can I ask Mara, is there a point where you feel that the text is yours. It goes from being someone else's text and then it becomes yours. Do you ever have that moment? Uh, that's, yeah, I, I, think, oh, I, now it's good. Now it looks, now, now it, now it's reading well. To me, it's not just a moment in, in a current project, but more a moment in my evolution, as you will, um, as a translator. Um, and it, I was translating a, a book written by my husband, who's also a translator. Um, <laughs> and so he had a lot to say about the, you know, the questions I was asking him. I like, I like to work with my authors um, and, and talk to them about their intentions. I'm, I'm always clear that I have the last say that it, what I'm interested in finding out what what their goal was with a certain word or and a lot of times it has to do with nuance but then I then I am the one who has to find the way to do that in English so it became very clear when I was working with someone who lived in the same apartment as me that um, and someone who translates from English, I really had to mark out that space of, no, the, this text is mine. Um, 
with limitations, of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I I do try to stay very close to the original. Um, it helps to for me to reveal stylistic aspects and um, and the the writer's process, which I then need to find a way to emulate, which isn't always a clear path uh, because you know these uh, these two languages aren't that different from each other, but uh you know we're not working with you know a different alphabet or but at the same time um there's there's things we can do in katsan that we can't do as successfully in english so i try to kind of find find that sweet spot i don't do different texts demand different ways of going about it or absolutely um... no you've you've hit the nail on the head that's exactly what it is and this is why i I tend to stay clear of translation theory because I think translation theory is trying to come up with a theory that covers a total approach, well, that creates a total approach and it covers all, all possible translations that one might do. Whereas I believe that each book has its own challenges. Well, not to uh, bring in translation theory, but my um, favorite translation theorist is a, is a, British man named Andrew Chesterman, who lives in Helsinki, and he says, uh, a translation is in itself a theory, um, which I love, because every book uh, is is its own world. Um, and I think uh, there's, you, you, you have to find a way to dive in and swim around and you know, get comfortable. There's a way, you know, when you get, put your belly button in, it's good. You know, there's a, there's different moments that are harder than others. Um, and, uh, and, and find, find your way out, not, not drown. Um, but I, I was recently speaking with a, a, a newer author of mine and, and I asked him a question and he said, oh no, you can, you know, you can make it that, something you know something much more simple and I said really you know because naturally I wouldn't take such a a leap um on my own so there's there's interesting ways that you can get permission um and even from dead authors I feel there's a way that you can get inside that you you feel you you might know what what they what they would want. It's it's honoring the person, whether they're whether they're alive or 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 not. You're, you're honoring that person's work. There's something I find that I've always found interesting. That actually, Jaume Pons says that traduí no es traí es tria. So tra- translating isn't betray betrayal. It's it's choosing. But that choice that you make is based on, it's based on knowledge. It's based on your readings. It's based on your knowledge of the of the culture and the traditions. Let's move into that a bit more. Let's look, start looking then into how these novels situate themselves within uh, literary culture, Western literary culture, global uh, literary culture, and particularly how they might reveal different ideas or different aspects uh, of Catalonia. Because one is set within. Catalonia and one isn't uh but it refers back to it and uh our Jimmy's novel is set at a demonology conference in Turin as you said Tiago however Barcelona is revealed 
uh, to the narrator in a dream, which seems to then propel him into uh, this this the, the story of uh, the bishop that's tried to to locate the devil. Uh, and then Solar's novel is set in the Pyrenees Mountains on the border between France. I wonder if we could just talk about the significance of these settings and what they might have revealed about uh, Catalonia when you were uh, translating those novels. The setting of Irena's book is also one that draws on a lot of history. Um, there's a one chapter that's narrated by the ghosts of witches that were hanged in the 17th century. And I, she worked with, you know, actual witch trial materials from the period. And then there's also ghosts from, from the 20th century. The book is set in the present, but um, ghost of a little girl um, from, from the Civil War who was fleeing through Catalonia. Um, the, some of the stories that are layered on this patch of land have to do with uh, you know the the remnants of of artillery that you can still find there, um, and the weight of that historically. So it's it's very present in in the land and the mountains. When they speak, they're you know they they laugh at the you know short lifespan that humans have and, and what they and their problems yeah so i mean it's it's a borderland isn't it it's it's a border between uh france and, and catalonia and um i mean i don't know if if this would be a bit of a stretch but so we, we spoke about the civil war uh and people sort of fleeing well the the first the first uh people that went into exile were you know, if you read the list, it's all, you know, nuns and priests and because oh. there was a big anti-clerical movement. So um, complicated, but this one was very complicated in terms of um, I just recently read this book written by a, 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 a fascist Catalan intellectual about his time spent in the Cheka um, mm. during the war, which was, you know, the horrible uh republic the communist jails uh, you know and the mm. the tortures that he underwent getting his fingernails pulled out um so it was it it was a uh a very bloody um conflict and um there was there was a lot of loss of life uh in general and i think you 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 feel that in in the in the landscape that Edena creates. Um, but then of course, the outcome, um, the nationalist victory was a real loss for, for Catalan uh, authors <laughs> um, among other people. But so there's, there's, there's that legacy now that we're still dealing with. Do you think loss defines this novel? In many ways. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the, there's there's not a huge plot it, um, in this novel. Um, it has to do with with two deaths um, within a family and and how they how they play out. I think um, lyricism is also very important in this novel poetry. Yeah, no, I, I, it's interesting listening to what you're saying, Mana, because you know with with I think with a lot of the criticism around. Um, Sola's book and this happens all, all the time when a female writer 
write something write something of literary value, immediately everyone starts saying, oh, it's like Prodoreda. Oh, it's just like uh, Victor Catala. And these are the two names that always always come up. And it's 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 lazy because really Sola is drawing on so much more. I think even the way she puts the landscape as a protagonist goes back to writers like uh, Baireda with La Puñalada, which is from it's published 1903, 1904, where it's set in the pre-Pyrenees and really the mountains and the forests, quite clearly a, a, one of the main protagonists in, in the novel. And I, I think also, I think she's drawing on that, but also on when you said about the, the, the witches. So there's this, um, I think she's going back to the poet Maria Marseille Marsal as well, but also with Montserrat Roch, with the historical historical memory talking about exile. It's a fascinating work and, and, and it's really disappointing when you, you, you see critics just making these easy comparisons when really she's drawing on a lot of, of, of Catalan writers. In terms of Argemi, I, it, obviously, it, you know, the setting is completely different, but again, there's a, the influence of, of the history of Catalonia, these, the, the, the strong links with, between Catalonia and Italy, Obviously, with Spain, Spain's power during the 17th century with the Golden Age, all of that is very, very visible. I think as well, he, he's also uh, drawing on painting. I think there's very much uh, this conflict. This conflict between good and evil is, is, is expressed through a conflict between light and darkness, which again goes back to... Um, Spanish Golden Age painting, Caravaggio. Hey there, just a quick message from me. And just to say, if you're really enjoying today's podcast, I'd be really grateful if you left a review on your favourite podcast provider. The Rippling Pages is all about letting writers talk about their craft so that you and other listeners can learn more about the art of literature. Leaving a review increases the reach of the podcast and hopefully means that more people will hear about the writer's work. Thanks very much, and it's just great to have you here. But yeah, but Al Jamie's novel, um, we we only seem to get further and further away from from Catalonia and, and, and Barcelona, and it and it becomes, as you said, this like Bohemian world of worlds within world, the kind of infinite library, books within books, and and the labyrinthine uh, nature of it. We at one point we read about the case of the of the missing bishop Augustino de Sacramente, who tries to find uh, the devil and goes on this search for the devil, which ultimately lends its title. Uh, to the novel I mean what are the challenges then to to sort of translating a novel that is so like you said labyrinthine uh, and so kind of stories framed within stories I suppose in the first first instance it's kind of being in tune with the book feeling intimately what it's trying to do and what it's very successful at doing um, and then it's really just about bringing that out finding the best way to represent that in English as 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 Mara said that there are Catalan and English have a lot of differences, obviously, but you know we're talking about we're, we're, it's language in the sort of same sort of area. Yeah. However, there are things in English that we just can't do that we can easily do in Catalan, um, which can be a challenge because the way that uh, Catalan grammar works owes itself to this lyricism that a lot of allows this lyricism that Catalan writers often use. So, in English, you have to kind of shorten things a little bit, turn 
one phrase into into two or three and that can be challenging because then you're interrupting this natural flow but it, it's hard for me to really pinpoint challenges beyond that because as i said i found it such a joyful experience translating this book but at least when i translate i i start to live within the book which is it's only now that i'm able to kind of differentiate because before it's quite difficult but now you live within the book but then there's a time when you have to close it you have to switch off the computer and you have to go back to reality and that's quite that's quite difficult to go from one reality to the other so living within this book was was a wonderful experience and the book is the book itself is about different realities within realities mm. um you know what is what okay. is reality uh mara i'm gonna come back to you well this book is about it's about voices and i guess it's it's about it's about translating different voices and experiences that that might speak different language anyway it's talking about the the mushrooms deer we spoke different voices from history i mean how how what was it like to be presented then with all these voices in in this novel and to try and translate that the sort of easiest way is i remember what chapters scared me the most to to attempt um one was definitely the second chapter the um i believe it's called in English, the names of the women, which are those um, those 17th century voices um, that are very unhinged. And, um, and I wanted to make them sound a, a bit old timey. Um, in the original, um, it's easier to find that register because there, there's just so, so much, um, more old Catalan uh, sources than than there are old English sources, um, and I was nervous about the 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 chapter that's in the voice of Ilari, where it has his poems, and it was great because I talked to Irena about it. I said, and she's like, "Mara, it's not like he's a great poet." <laughs> it's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> that uh, relieved some of the the tension there for me of um, of translating poetry, which is something that continues to, to feel intimidating for me, even though I love to, um, to translate prose by poets. Um, some of the voices that I loved, well, I, I like the dog's voice and the mushrooms, because it's kind of rare that you get to translate a collective voice like that. Then there's, you know, there's a sort of a uh, a Barcelonian uh, tourist who who comes up one day. So that, but it really the in the end, I I I like the the love story of it too, um, and the ending very satisfying for me. That there's a point where I think readers um, and translator as reader can feel a little unmoored. Um, with with all the different voices, and so it, I think it's it's very satisfying when that the ways that it comes together in the end. Um, yeah, it's one of those where um, there's not a clear indicator, so it doesn't say this is the chapter about the mushrooms or uh, you know this is the chapter that's set in the in the past kind of thing. You have to work that out from well, you, there's several things that help you sort of understand that, and there is sort of clear matter, but you have to work that out to an extent from the voice of the narrative. But what you picked on the names of the women there, and what I did feel though is that this section of the book really starts to uh, bring out some ideas about these kind of prominent ideas about good and bad, 
that are in both these novels. The Catalan, if I can use such broad strokes, view of good and evil is a very complicated one. Um, it, and he there's there's that that presence um, in a way that's also subverted. You know, you it's it's a presence, but it, one that can be poked fun at um, too, in a way, or again, the, the pera porte idea of, you, you know, you, you, you can go to hell and come back. Um, and, and it's right there. It's, it's not, it's not that far away. Um, and I think there's a interesting tradition of that within Catalan art. Um, in, uh, in, uh, Arjemi's book, it, I mean, the narrator, it is revealed to be Giuseppe Palaui Fabra, who, you know, who is a poet who called himself the alchemist. You know, there's all there's all these links that um, can kind of coexist. I don't think it's so clear cut as good and evil, um, but more um, alchemical and it, trans historical. Or uh, um, there's there's a kind of a, a deep well to draw on that I think has also benefited sometimes from its hermeticism uh, the from the world not paying too much attention to it um, except of course you know Salvador Dali or something like that there there there's always been a few Catalans that the world has paid attention to but um, it the Catalan artists that are writers have had a, a a harder time kind of making their way out into the world. These novels have particular ideas about the devil or things like witch ones or distinctions between good acts and bad acts. So, and you were speaking then about, so when you moved on to Salvador Dali and the kind of culture of how people communicate from the Catalan language, perhaps to a wider, are you saying then that this relates to a particular idea appreciation of art? I've been thinking in terms of Arjami's book about why the the narrator is this poet, um, because it it seems to be uh, important. The figure of this poet would say that of 20th century literatures, Catalan literature is particularly poetry heavy, and there's reasons uh, for that. But I think well, I, I mean, I feel like he's working within this. We ha- we have this idea in Catalonia of sen y rausha, which is like kind of practical common sense, and then a kind of a craziness um, that's also affected by the landscape and this idea that we have a a a, a wind that drives you crazy um, on the coast. And these sort of bringing in a, a, a lot of ideas that look at evil or this idea of the devil in a in a very nuanced way. That's I mean, these witches aren't saying that the devil is bad, right? Uh, for example, um, these characters are in in Najemi's book are seeing the devil in a way that also I don't think could be classified merely as bad. 
Well, I think, yeah, I think Tiago, you said the devil in Arjami's novel is a knowledge bringer. He's an intellectual figure. The lines are very blurred. I mean, it's, it is an explanation of good and evil, but um, not as you might imagine or, 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 or as we are accustomed to seeing it, it expressed. I think what they're, I think what's really going on is that there's a there's an element of communication. There's a really good scene when Agostino de Sacramonte, who's this guy that who's this Renaissance man who who died, he went to hell, comes back and he he wants to tell his story, his of his journey to hell, and he goes to goes to see the Pope to explain it. Um, and obviously the system, the the institution does not accept this uh, this this knowledge um, of the after of the of the underworld, no? But he he then goes on a trip to Constantinople. And along the way, these kind of demons rise up from the sea, but he's able to, and they cause a great storm, and they're all, the, the crew's on the point of death, but he's able to speak to these creatures in the language of the birds, which obviously goes back to the idea of Eden and et cetera, et cetera. So it's about communication, it's about knowledge, and it's about an interaction as well with the kind of what's not permitted you know we're not supposed to interact with 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 the devil with hell with all the darkness but this uh this novel does that and people do it who you wouldn't expect to do it like cardinals and bishops they're they're interacting a lot more with this world because it's it's a totality rather than just splitting the world into good and evil light and dark we're here here's the border and you're over there there's more this it's more about the totality of knowledge and existence and that includes um the dark side but in the dark side there's a lot of good things as well there's a lot of interesting things but i think as well with solas book i think she's with the idea of the witches she's making a link to maria merce marsal who wrote uh Bruchendol, which is coming out in english or if it's not already out i'm it might already be out, but it's certainly out soon if it's not been published, um, which is Witch in Mourning, where she takes the idea of a witch, which is traditionally an evil character, and flips it and uses it to express her feminist theory and says she buys, she, she explores the idea of the witch as being repressed and massacred throughout history and inverts the the, um, the the masculine interpretation of of a witch. Marcel also she's from she grew up in Yeda and she her her, her certainly her early poet, poetry has this link to to these primitive elements, no of air, water, earth, and fire, and she, and she really draws on a lot of mythical and ancestral imagery. Uh, so yeah, listeners to the previous episode with Seraphina Madsen will have heard uh, another book about witches. And I think the link that, that that I find interesting is is in that book, the young girl, Aurora, eventually becomes a witch. And it seems to represent this idea of going outside the boundaries of what's been presented to you as knowledge, you know, finding or learning theories that, that people don't necessarily want you to read, but are presented as dangerous when in reality, they're not dangerous. It's just another viewpoint of the world that, that sort of conflicts what the mainstream uh, idea is. And I don't know if that is similar to sort of what, what you guys are thinking here, but it's something that the protagonist of Aurora takes ownership of. It's something that she, you know, she is a witch. It's not something that 
she's characterized as wait till you read her next book <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh wow okay picked up on a, something that you wrote in lit hub basically we're talking about when you moved to barcelona and you were trying to learn catalan and you said you were fascinated by the very over linguistic campaigns and particularly one that exhorted uh to speak without shame speak freely uh, and just keep trying despite my mistakes is there anything in this idea of speaking without shame that does relate to a certain pride of speaking the Catalan language and that might relate to its historic treatment? Sens dubta, as we would say in Catalan. Um, there's no uh, way at this point to extricate Catalan language from its political history, um, which involves a, a, a lot of repression. Uh, also an, an incredibly long um, literary history. And um, uh, they've just recently found new texts, what they thought were the oldest written you know, 12th century texts in Kotzlan, though they found older ones. Um, those weren't literary texts, but there's a, there, you know, even in uh, El Quixote, they, he talks about coming to Barcelona, you know, and it being this this publishing center. And um, there, so there's a lot to draw on there, but there's also a lot of history of repression where um, being a Catalan writer, and this is something that continues to today, is um, is is seen as being involved in part of a, of a heroic uh, continuity of um, preserving and modernizing the Catalan language, which was only really codified in uh, the early 20th century uh, by Pompeu Fabra. So um, then there were a series of of real uh, interruptions to the ability to to publish freely in Catalan. Um, young people um, <laughs> that are writing Catalan today are are definitely a, a part of of that history, which is um, is quite rare in the twenty first century, uh, where most most smaller languages are are meeting difficult fates well i think as soon as you speak in catalan in your daily life out on the street this is the language that you choose to communicate in you are making a political statement of some sort not an overt political statement but it's there because you are saying that spain is a multilingual country Catal catalan is co-official language in Catalonia. And this is something that successive Spanish governments, whatever their color, want to end. They want Spain to be monolingual. Um, so speaking in Catalan, and the best way that I, can, that I can explain it is to do it in a natural way. It's the most normal thing in the world. And actually in Yeda, I must say, it's really normal to have bilingual conversations. It's not an issue. I don't know. I mean, every day I find myself having a conversation where I'm speaking in Catalan and the person with me is speaking in, in Castilian. And that's completely normal. That's completely normalized in, 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 in Lleida. Uh, other parts of Catalonia probably isn't. Um, 
But yes, whether you like it or not, it's a political statement. But I would also say that you're showing respect for, certainly as someone from abroad, you're showing respect for where you live because you can only understand the people, the culture and the tradition through the language. And you can only understand the language through the culture and the people and the traditions. So uh, it's, it's been a fascinating journey for me. Um, but I, I understand, I mean, it is there. People do feel unsure of what to do in social situations of what of which language to speak in. All um, this person speaking in Spanish, I better I better switch. And it's difficult for people to get out of that mindset. And you can end up in the absurd situation where you have two Catalan native speakers speaking to each other in Spanish because both think the other one doesn't understand Catalan. It's insane. I personally just go about my daily business and 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 speak in Catalan and and do it with a smile and that's it. Speaking any language has political overtones. I mean, when there's um, a history there, whether we think about it or talk about it or not. I mean, um, the there's many indigenous languages uh, in the United States that are mostly destroyed by English. I mean that there. Th what was interesting for me was seeing that in a different way. That here we have a, a ministry of linguistic politics, and what does that mean? You know, <laughs> quote that's always stuck with me um, by a, a minister of linguistic politics who said, "Every country has linguistic politics. They don't. They just don't all. Uh, uh, you know." codify them into law. So um, thinking about language in that way was was revelatory for me. Um, in fact, in, in Irena's book, I don't know how many people realize this in the English translation, but there's one chapter that's written in Spanish. And I tried to um, put some, some clues in there, um, but that's something that you can do seamlessly in Catalan um, yeah. and and you, you can't do in English in the same way. Unfortunately, the political situation of Catalan continues to to be to be an issue. However, the the fact that we have so many writers is is definitely a, a point in its in its favor. Yeah, it, although it might seem like a sort of a downbeat note, but it does seem like a thriving literary culture that is distinct in its own right, but also is in conversation with a lot of other literary cultures, European cultures. I mean, and it, it, even though Catalan as a language is losing speakers and it's really, really struggling to uh, survive in a globalised world, it's really difficult for Catalan to compete with Spanish in terms of audiovisual content, online content. Young people don't have as much um, content that speaks to them in Catalan. They normally have to, to look to Spanish content for that. And that is to do with just the, the way the globalized, modern globalization works. However, as you say, Catalan literature is in, incredibly strong, mm. incredibly strong. And that is, it's really positive. And I think it's only going to continue. I don't see it. It's not flash in the pan. You know, it, it's, it's here to stay.
because we have a lot of good young writers coming through at the moment. And, you know, well, you guys are, you know, you're making a massive contribution to that. And hopefully this uh, podcast makes, you know, a little contribution to that in some way and keeps it, keeps the conversations going uh, in some form. Hopefully that's what I like to think uh, anyway. Mara, Tiago, it has been uh, an absolute pleasure. It's been horizon widening conversations, certainly for me. So I hope it is for our listeners too, and I'm, I'm sure it is. But uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Rippling Pages podcast. Thank you so much, Liam. Thank you, Tiago. Thanks, guys. I uh, hopefully speak to you soon. My thanks again to Mara and Tiago for joining me for today's episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. And of course, my thanks to you for listening as well. Next time, I'm going to be joined by Soraya Pham, and we're talking about her debut novel, The Human Origins of Beatrice Porter and Other Essentials Ghosts, published by Sir.